Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Dezank Books, publisher of the story collection A Girl Goes Into the Forest by Peg Alford Purcell. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Purcell's sophomore collection centers on mothers, daughters, and the myth of the American girl. Ramona Ozabel, author of Awayland, calls it, quote, as beautiful and fine as a string of pearls and as complex as a thousand-piece puzzle. And Kirkus Reviews raves, quote, Purcell is a master of the atmospheric moment. A Girl Goes Into the Forest, the new story collection by Peg Alford Purcell, on sale July 16th from Dezank Books. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have over there by the black hole. Every and, stupid uh, thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listing, and I am here in Los Angeles, California. I'm recording this on July 4th, just so you know. I'm standing here in my garage on July 4th. There was just an earthquake. I believe it registered 6.4 on the Richter scale. I got to be really honest. Just this morning, earlier this morning, I went to the gym and I was sitting there and I was listening to a podcast and the woman that was talking on the podcast, she was being interviewed. She started talking about psychic powers and how she believes that everybody has them, but in certain people, they're just more developed. And it got me thinking about the most intense psychic experience of my own uh, particular life where I was in my office, as I usually am. I was staring at my computer, as I usually am. And it suddenly occurred to me, like the, the line, the sentence, I smell an earthquake, suddenly occurred to me. And I tweeted it. And not an hour or two later, there was an earthquake in Los Angeles. I don't know how to explain that. Maybe it's just a coincidence. But it was just so strange that I had that thought in the first place that it struck me so strongly that I tweeted it and then that an actual earthquake happened an hour or two later. So just this morning, I was thinking about that. And then I came home and I was sitting at the counter eating breakfast or, uh, you know, having some uh, caffeine. And suddenly my dog Twiggy started uh, growling and I started to feel the roll. 
And it's weird, you know, because unless it's really strong and there's just no question at all, you usually spend the first few seconds of an earthquake wondering if you, you're actually experiencing an earthquake or, you know, you start to wonder if you're fooling yourself. So I sat there and then I looked up and I saw the little chandeliers in our kitchen. You know, we have light fixtures that hang and they started to sway gently. And I knew, and I heard some creaking beams and wood, you know, all the things that you hear during an earthquake. So that has just happened. And fortunately, everything seems to be fine, at least in my household. So Erin Hosier is my guest today. Her new memoir is called Don't Let Me Down. It is available from Atria Books. And Erin Hosier is my literary agent and has been, for my God, a long time, 15 years, something like that. And she has been on this program once before with Patty Schemmel. And you may remember this. It was uh, episode 497. Uh, Aaron and Patty were here to discuss Patty's memoir, uh, Hit So Hard. And Patty, of course, is a musician and famously was the drummer of the band Hole. And she and Aaron collaborated on the book, and they came over and talked to me a while back. And now Aaron Hosier has published a memoir all her own. And once again, it's called Don't Let Me Down. It is a wonderfully funny and deeply honest and moving book about her upbringing in Ohio, her family life, and in particular, her relationship with her dad, who was a very difficult and troubled and dynamic and interesting person. And there was a lot of love there, but there was a lot of difficulty there. And she goes right into it and captures the complexity of family life that uh, ultimately describes all of us. So a terrific book, and I had a great time talking with Erin and helping her celebrate the publication of her memoir, and that is coming up momentarily. Before I get there, though, I do have a ton of mail to respond to and listener feedback. A lot of you reached out to me after last week's episode, episode 587, my conversation with Brett Easton Ellis, and uh, you know the, the conversation in large part centered on his new essay collection, White, which has been making a lot of waves and has been generating a big response in the, uh, the world of book media. So I'm just going to go through and read listener responses. I feel obligated to give everybody I can, or as many of you as I can, a fair hearing here, um, since you were kind enough to listen and write in. So Jeffrey, uh, a listener named Jeffrey says, Welp, this wasn't the Brett Easton Ellis political commentary that I wanted, but maybe the 2019 American Wildscape check-in that I needed. Killer episode. It takes a village. Another listener named Felicity said, this was one of the best conversations, and that's all I'm going to say. Also, I have to go read Brett Easton Ellis's works. I've never done so before. A listener named Iglo says, that was a really interesting and intelligent interview. A listener named Chelsea says, such a great episode. A listener named Lauren says, the exchange at the one hour mark got my nipples hard. Incredible interview. <laughs> uh, a listener named Adam says, I admired Brad Listy's restraint in the most recent episode of Other People. I wish Brett uh, Easton Ellis would try to be a little more thorough with his argument because I think there could be more commonality if he went deeper than, quote, calm down and, quote, you're overreacting. Loved the conversation. 
A listener named Rhea says, Dear Brad, I think Brett Easton Ellis needs therapy for his anger, and there's little that you or I can do about that. One of the best parts of being 50-plus is realizing that there's little you can do about many things, especially angry men. Regards, Rhea. So, just so you know, I'm not 50-plus. I don't know if you were implying that. I'm only 43, and I'm hanging on. A listener named William says, uh, Dear Brad, you did Yeo Man's work in trying to empathize with and draw out Brett Easton Ellis, which really amounts to attempting to penetrate the calculated ennui and over-it-allness of his shtick. That said, he feels to me like the Trump of literature at this point, a guy who gets attention by putting on display the parts of ourselves that we hate. I don't mind a straightforward Hobbesian argument. The endless war of all on all, the American spirit is a hard, stoic killer... But the laziness of his trolling, how wildly uninformed he is, and how epistemologically apathetic he is, yuck. Yes, he gets a reaction from folks. So does a gun or a fart. But I mean to praise you. I thought you did a good job. You're not a confrontational person. You're a curious, supportive, give everybody a chance to say their peace kind of person, which is good. You tried to have a civil and genuine discourse with a fundamentally disingenuous person, you made some important points and highlighted the essential hypocrisy of his whole pose, which has spanned his career. His whole shtick is to pretend not to give a shit and then act all weirded out when other people do. Anyway, to reiterate, you did good. Brett is a well-defended guy, having had years of practice, and you forced him deeper into himself. Signed, Will. And then a listener named John says, Brad... The attached clip of your Brett Easton Ellis conversation stood out to me. It's when Brett is talking about the types of fiction that he reads and can't read. And so here I'm going to interrupt and I'm going to play the clip in question. So here's the clip that John is referring to. And it's true. I can, if I, but if I pick up a book and stylistically it grabs me, I'm there easily. It's just finding that is a little harder and really developing that kind of style is I think key to a writer's, uh, you know, existence and keeping them going, uh, a way of seeing the world that you're relating to the reader that no one else can do. Uh, that's why I think I get so, so, um, I don't know, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, so annoyed by a lot of genre fiction that just is telling a story, like a lot of mysteries, just don't grab me because they're told in such a bare bones fashion. And I'm not interested in the information. I'm not interested in the information at all. I'm interested in how the information is being given to me. And that has pretty much always been the way I've read uh, to a certain degree. So uh, there you go. So John then continues in his letter. Because of the political conversations you and Brett fell into prior to this moment of the conversation... I heard this clip with Trump and politics in my head and instantly saw a comparison between Brett's tastes regarding different types of fiction and the tastes of different voters as to the rhetoric of different politicians. Doesn't quote, I'm not interested in the information. I'm not in interested in the information at all. I'm interested in how the information is being given to me, end quote, sound a lot like the fiction a Trump supporter caricature would be prone to read. One where facts are irrelevant, where it's all style and no substance. Doesn't that sound like the fiction that comes out of Trump's mouth? Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting moment, and it obviously got me thinking. Just wondered if you thought anything like this in the moment 
after the fact or are thinking about it now. Not trying to use it to prove that Brett is a closeted Trumper, but he may have stumbled onto a literary to politics analogy for me. That is all. Thanks for recording, John. So thanks for listening, John. That is really interesting. I think Donald Trump is definitely a style over substance politician if there ever was one. And if you really love style, and that's your primary concern in uh, literature or politics or otherwise, then I suppose there might be some appeal there. But I don't know. I I, I did not make that connection in the moment. And uh, frankly, I didn't make the connection until I read your email. But it's an interesting take, and I appreciate the careful listen. So uh, that's all I'm going to get to, just so I don't keep uh, this monologue going on interminably. I do want to say a few words of my own about the Brett Easton Ellis interview, because, you know, the, the reality is he's a major American author and has been for a long time. He's, uh, in the literary fiction space, he's had the kind of success that most writers of literary fiction dream of. Uh, not only did he publish, you know, when he was 21, he's sold some books and, um, you know, I feel like he's one of those writers that people know. And most people don't know writers. <laughs> so I, I, I did sweat a lot over the interview. I spent a lot of time thinking about it and worrying about it and wanting to get it right, aware of the fact that there's been this big response in book media to White, uh, the essay collection that Brett just published. And I know that there have been some media appearances or interviews that he's done that have made some waves and there's just been a lot of uh, conversation and controversy and heat around him and this book not only you know with regard to the recent publication but in general and especially in the era of Trump so i wanted to do a good job in the interview and you know to do a good job you have to first figure out what that even means so first i read Brett's book uh, i read a, a lot of the reviews And when I was reading, I worked hard to be open and to not let any reviews or tweets or whatever that I had read infect the read. I wanted to, to, you know, give it a fair hearing. And uh, the truth is that I found many points of agreement in the book. He's a smart guy. And there there were moments, like I said in the interview, where I was nodding. Uh, I think some of the pieties of the left are, uh, you know, they deserve to be challenged. And... I do have some trouble with cancel culture where I worry about uh, the rules of the game and how that works and who gets to decide and make the rules. Um, But there were other moments where I wasn't nodding and there were some moments where I was even like kind of recoiling, especially when it comes to Trump. And I said all of that in the interview. I tried to be honest about it while also... Um, maintaining decorum and being respectful. I think you can do both. And I hope that's what the effect of the interview ultimately was, is that you can have people who don't necessarily agree about everything, uh, you know, especially when it comes to important subject matter, but who can nevertheless uh, have a good conversation and be game and honest with one another and try to share perspectives. And I think that kind of dialogue is in short supply in the country right now and maybe the world in general. And so 
hopefully it, you know, it serves uh, some kind of positive purpose and it was enjoyable to, to hear that kind of exchange. Uh, I'm sure I missed some stuff. I've obviously spent time in the aftermath thinking about it and wondering, you know, I could have done this better or I could have done that better. Or maybe I should have held back here. Maybe that was rude. You know, I was trying to, trying to walk the line. Um, and I enjoyed Brett, you know, in person, uh, he came over, he was nice. He was funny. He was open. He was game. He didn't ask for any changes. He didn't ask me to edit anything. He just said, let it roll, you know, let it roll. And he sat here for almost two hours. So there's that aspect, uh, to things too. I enjoyed meeting him. But, uh, you know, again, I got to be honest that the nonchalance around Trump is really hard for me. And I think if I had something that I would like to do over, I think if there's one thing that's been bothering me, most of all, it's that I wish that I would not have, um, failed to ask him about his disinterest in politics and his professed, um, apoliticism. He, he says he's apolitical over and over again. He's very clear about that. He doesn't like politics. He's apolitical. He doesn't vote. And, you know, on the day of the interview, you have to realize I work a full-time job and we recorded during the week over my lunch break. So it was a two hour window of time that I carved out for this, but I was in the middle of a busy day and I wonder, you know, if I just didn't have all of my brain together, I wonder if I would have been better if I would have had all of my brain, but it is what it is. And, uh, that was the time that we found. And, um, I think that, you know, it, there is a cognitive dissonance, a fundamental cognitive dissonance around being apolitical, not voting and professing to not care about politics and to then writing a book that addresses many hot button political issues of the day and talks at length about the president and people's reaction to the president. So I'm not saying that you can't do that if you're apolitical or, you know, anybody can do whatever they want. You can write whatever you want. But I think generally, not just with Brett, but in general, like a critique that I have around politics, and I've, I've probably said this before on the show, is that it's this weird area of concern in human life where people who don't care about it, don't really think about it much, don't read deeply about it or watch the news or read the papers or pay careful attention to it, nevertheless have really strong opinions about it and believe that those opinions are right. And if you, you know, if you try to draw a line of comparison, you know, I always use sports. It's like, it's like if somebody is like a huge hockey fan and they love hockey and they read the sports page every day and they follow hockey. They know all the players. They know the statistics. They know the teams. They know the coaches. They know the strategy. They know who got drafted where. Like all the stuff, all the minutia of sports fandom. You have that person who has a particular opinion about who's going to win the Stanley Cup playoffs. And then you have somebody who doesn't know anything about hockey, never watches hockey, doesn't know the rules of hockey doesn't know the players' names, knows nothing, can't ice skate, <laughs> but nevertheless has a very strong opinion about who's going to win the Stanley Cup playoffs. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I know it's not a one-for-one. One. Politics and hockey are two different things, I think. But it just seems to me that if you don't like hockey and you don't pay attention to hockey, you wouldn't have much to say about hockey. 
that's the point that I am stuck on. And that's a question that I would like to have posed more clearly. So anyway, uh, I did my best and you know, my show is not a takedown show. I'm not interested in that. And I'm not really sure how great I am at confrontation or, uh, or debate for that matter. I like to meet people where they are. I like to have conversations and let them say their piece. And I like to learn about people and who they are and what makes them tick. And, uh, I like to learn about their work and why they do it. All the usual stuff of this podcast. So this particular episode with Brett was, you know, was loaded to an unusual degree just because of all the media coverage and how much interest there is in particular in the literary community. Most of the time when I have people on this show, it's like, you know, I'm asking them if they saw God when they took acid or what happened in junior high or, you know, (laughs) so, uh, I hope I did an okay job. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And, uh, I hope that hearing us discuss and debate a little bit in a civil manner was a positive thing. And, um, I think it's important to engage with politics in a serious way, especially now. I think part of the reason why we're in the situation that we're in is that people don't enough. There's not enough conversation and deep thought and deep reading happening in that space. And there's not enough attention paid to the fundamentals of civics and governance and citizenship. Like I know some people, you know, kind of eye roll when, when I start talking like that probably, but I think it's important. I think we get the country we deserve in a lot of uh, respects. And the only way that we're going to get a saner country and a saner, uh, species is if people participate more and, uh, realize their own agency. So enough about that. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for responding and writing and letting me know what you think. And uh, thanks again to Brett Easton Ellis for coming over and talking to me. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today, once again, is Aaron Hosier. Her new memoir is called Don't Let Me Down. It is available now from Atria. Uh, I had such a good time seeing her when she came through town, and I am so 
happy for her. And uh, I just really loved her book. I read it in two sittings. So here she is, folks. This is Erin Hosier, and her memoir, One More Time, is called Don't Let Me Down. And I somehow didn't think of myself as a writer, so I thought that it would that would elude me. Like I could escape the necessary depression that comes with feeling like I and the panic because I w- I would really just panic because it's so the, but it's so effort, the blank page it's so effortless um, or what it, on the page it's in on the page it, it comes across as you are in control of the material really yes because I never felt in control the whole time that I was writing it and I also hated it and hated myself for taking it on. And I think several times I was like, I need to give this money back. I need to bow out. And something just wouldn't let me not keep going. And part of it was my agent. And of course, then I was broke after a while. And I was like, I can't pay the money back. I just have to keep forging ahead. But, but that's a, that can be a good pressure, like whatever it takes. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it felt bad. And I think it was, it's just, I lost my confidence. And then I went on a medication that didn't work for me. And that can really fuck up a writer's Like what, like process. an SSRI? Or? Yeah, yeah, like a something for one's brain, that, but an antidepressant. And it just took months and months to work. You know what I mean? And yeah. I just couldn't get my back to myself where I felt like I I'm in control of this narrative. So when did it, what was the turning point or did you just like, like it's, it's nice to think that there was some moment or like, you know, pivot and suddenly it just came flying out of you. But like most often, um, for me anyway, it's like, then you just start to plot and all of a sudden you look up and there's like 20 pages done. And then you go, you go back into a funk for a week and then you come back again and there, you know, was that how it was or was it a a burst? A couple things happened. One was classic publishing nightmares happened, like one after another, but they kind of were good for me in that they gave me a lot more time. So, for instance, I originally sold the book to the Free Press, which is an imprint that is now like a little bit to the right politically, but within the Simon & Schuster family, but that was not what the imprint was at the time. Um, and then for a while, that imprint went under, and I got to keep my editor and my book contract, but they moved it over to another imprint called Atria. Which is great. Which is great. I was lucky there. Then I was a year turning in my draft. I was a year late turning in that draft. Like, I got an extension. And then Can my I ask you editor... A question? Can I sure, ask you, sure. Just for people listening... Yes. Um, what happens, and you can speak to this both as an author as an, and as an agent, when an author has a deadline for a book that was sold on proposal and they miss the deadline? Like, is there typically a financial penalty or is it? It's not a financial penalty, but contractually they can say, wow, you didn't deliver. So we're going to cancel this. Oh. Um, and then they typically will like give you you know you've you've signed the contract and you've collected on a portion of the advance usually a third or a quarter of the advance and you'd have to pay that back so sometimes they 
if they cancel it, they will let you pay them back with proceeds from when you sell it again, presumably if you do. Um, publishers, from what I've seen, are not typically like they're not going to sue you. Right. I mean, they will maybe eventually, but it just doesn't follow through. So they don't like to do it, but they will get very frustrated and angry yeah. and they can do it. So, I mean, cancel your book. So it's just a lot of pressure and like working in the business, like all these people know me. So right. there's that paranoia. Like, are they just, are, did they just buy this because they, it, I mean, it's awful. Yeah. It's awful. All like, the head games. Into, plus oh. it's like, you know, everybody. <laughs> right. So then the editor was, when I turned the book in, in earnest, um, the first draft anyway, which was like 400 pages, classically overwritten. She wasn't able to devote any time to it, which was essentially like a developmental edit. So again, I was kind of lucky just to get this pass of yet another year goes by. And my agent was like, this is unacceptable. Who's your agent? Betsy Lerner oh, okay, is yeah. my agent and also my friend and boss. Um, but that's another story. But um, I was relieved to have the extra time to just to to make it better, but also just to feel better and stronger about myself as a person. So the way I finally got the main draft down was, I think, in 2013, when I moved home to Ohio into my mom's house for six months and worked remotely there, which anyone can do when you're when you work in publishing, but not for a house, um, that I could, first of all, interview her and get her blessing and her um, eye on some of my pages, which is very probably unusual for a memoir writer who's exposing a lot of family secrets. But I, she was very generous with me in like giving me permission, validating my memories, thinking of things I hadn't thought, and then also providing a lot of backstory for things that I couldn't have known as a say, child. You have great, like um, unbelievable memory. I have of an this. unbelievable memory. I mean, I just do for things in the past. Like I can't remember people's names or faces in a way, unless they're like on a movie screen. Right. But I think like either I'm so sensitive. I think I'm just really sensitive. So like when anything you know, traumatic, certainly, but also just that left an impression on my, what I now know is like my writer's mind, mm -hmm. like that eye that you have for sense memory. Um, I just remember like thoughts I had when I was in 11th grade and I remember where I was when I had those thoughts. I don't remember a fucking thing. I know you like. told me that. And it's, <laughs> I think it just, did, you it's had not a happy, it's, it's not entirely true. It isn't entirely true because attention deficit disorder is so vivid. And I know based on real events, yeah. right? So the sticky stuff sticks. Yeah. But I feel like there are some people who do have like extraordinary recall for really specific things 
like thoughts they had in their youth, outfits they wore on a certain day. Totally. You know, I don't have that level of detail usually. That's interesting. Huh. But you do you do. think that's why you're drawn to fiction? I, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder sometimes if I like blew a fuse, I smoked too much pot or something. Well, <laughs> I definitely smoke too much pot still. <laughs> right. But it's true. It's like, I have a hard time making things up, like plotting that is, or, or building a world. Like that's something where I feel like I'm not creative. It's just the well, recall. <laughs> I can, but I can tell you this. I can tell you this. When I was reading your book, uh, there's so much of it I didn't know. Like mm-hmm. I've known you for years and years, but I didn't know the the story. Yeah. And um, so it was really interesting to like know the person, but not know this part of their lives, yeah. which is a lot of it. But, uh, you know, we met as adults. Yes. Um, I think in 2005. That was, yeah, that's about right. right? Yeah. So... It was, uh, it was super fun and like, uh, kind of voyeuristic. And it was also very much your voice. Oh, good. Yeah. It was, it was really like, oh my God, this is like, you know, all of Aaron's humor is there. And, um, as you know, as heavy as it, certain parts of it can be, um, it was a joy to read. Oh, good. I blew through it. Thank you. Yeah. So. So surprising. I want to talk to you about the conception of the book. Uh, you mentioned the original subtitle. Uh, earlier, uh, what is it? Yeah, a father and daughter and twenty-seven Beatles songs. And you must have come up with that in the um, in the proposal. I knew it was going to be um, a father-centric story. Like I think that in my life at the time, I think I was like thirty-four, and I had just gotten out of this horrible breakup with a probable sociopath. Um, or that's just my opinion. You can call it fake news. Um, but I had been having all these like heavy conversations with other friends of mine that were single. Um, you know, not just heterosexual people, but the way that, that women were relating to men if they were heterosexual and, I believe in the collective unconscious and I was getting a lot of therapy and looking at societal trends and mad men was, was very much a thing. And I was obsessed with Sally Draper and the way that she had, you know, Don's number. Like she was the one that saw everything really clearly. And yeah, that, and coupled with the fact that I did have this enormous amount of confidence around being able to sell or write, moreover, a book proposal for a biography or a memoir, since that's my specialty as an agent. And even though I didn't sell it, I certainly knew, you know, every editor that read it and all that stuff. Like, you knew how, yeah, you know how to do it. You know what works. Yeah. You see, I mean, over time, you see what works. Yes. What and certainly of... back then, you know, mem- memoir now is really difficult to sell if you're not famous, you know, or like the story isn't just extraordinary. Um, I, I, yeah. So what is it that goes into a book proposal that like gives it a I... better than average chance? <sighs> 
I think people responded to, I had the title, I had the epigraph, which was uh, Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live talking, interviewing Paul McCartney, the real Paul McCartney. I had that epigraph in my mind and I had the Don't Let Me Down title, which I was like, that says it all to me about the parent-child bond. And I knew it was going to have that Beatles structure. Um, it's another running theme in my life, and it was certainly like rock and roll history. It's it's what I represent a lot of rock and roll biographies or biographers. And you you know you and your dad had a special bond over the Beatles. Yes, like he introduced you to the band. That was the music of your youth. That, that was, was our hobby. Like how every kid, hopefully, if they have a dad, like has that thing. Like with my brothers, it was like the golf course. But I've never been on a golf course like on purpose. Um, but <laughs> we would <laughs> we would play records, and I would, but I would would go deep, and I would try to understand who he was and why he was like that, and in fact, why men are like they are the way they are. Well, no, okay, so um, let's, let's pause through for the a lives of the Beatles in a way, or through the music of, and the lyrics of those four glorious you know lads from liverpool yeah well and your dad is an extraordinary character like from a literary perspective yes um, yes like he contains a lot you know there are like and it's funny that we're talking about this because literally about an hour before not even an hour before you came over my daughter came in here and she was like dad she's like i think there's like three of you there's you who talks like this and she did this impression of me when I'm like distracted and she's asking me questions and I'm like doing the dishes or, you know, doing a million different things. And she's like, that's you when you're like not paying attention. Yeah. And she's like, then there's you who's like normal. And then there's <laughs> you who's like, Evan, you know, and she did this impression of me. Amazing. And I'm like, I looked at her and I was like, you're right. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can. But like, they see everything. They see everything. And she holds my feet to the fire and. I mean, it's good for me, but it's also yeah. it's painful. You're just like, oh, God, you know, I can't hide. It's true. It's true. It must feel. I I think I, I've i never wanted to have children or I've never had that instinct for myself because I think that I was so freaked out by being a kid through the eyes of my parents and how freaked out I could tell they were to be in control. Right. And because they weren't in control. So, and you know, for for people that don't know about any of the plot points of the book or about my dad, he he was he had an incredible, uncontrollable temper and, that would manifest physically with the kids in particular. Like he just, when he lost his temper, he would hit a kid. Um, and so that kind of hyper vigilance, I feel like I intuited a kind of like if you can have this effect as a child on a parent to the extent that they lose their mind enough to hit you and right. they're so big and you're so small like what is that that must be like the worst life to be a parent and i think that kind of blessed me in a way with a with like i don't i didn't need to be a mother which is a whole other you know, pressure that's put on women. And so I, I just, going back to what you're saying about your daughter, like, 
I did see everything, and I remember, you know, seeing him lose control and what that looked like. And it looked like fear. Um, and um, it mostly looked like fear and like regret even before regret could be expressed, like which I also saw in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Like, really? I thought when he came out at 11, you know, like like Matt Damon said in right. Saturday Night Live, right. I'm going to start at 11. <laughs> right. And his eyes were kind of like bloodshot, like he was on the verge of tears the whole time. And his jaw was set in a certain way, like very tight, like like his, it's hard to explain, but Trump also has a certain jaw thing and my dad totally had it really and none of those men look alike in the face but when i see a, a middle-aged man like lose his temper it always looks the same and i i feel like brett kavanaugh like my dad just like couldn't be honest he just cannot like look look himself in the face but he knows and i think that's the that's what's interesting about it is like why is it so hard to say sorry right to anyone but especially your kid look so sorry's didn't happen yeah sorry's didn't happen easily Mm, not easily um like certainly not like sorry for calling you a whore (laughs) (laughs) um and maybe they did maybe they did happen but it was like in other ways. I don't know if it was explicitly sorry, but just like being really super nice or just being like extra loving or saying I love you, which is different than saying I'm sorry right, and right. I love you. Yeah. But it's like hopefully implicit or it's, something. It's implicit. And I, I did feel, you know, loved by him, which is part of what makes me so sad about, or, and made me so sad when he died because I was like right at that Saturn Returns age, if you believe in that stuff. What, is that, what does that even mean? I don't know. It's like a fork in the road in astrology. Oh, okay. Apparently, like every 27 years, um, which of course is when a lot of rock stars die, um, the 27 Club, you're supposed to come to this fork in the road in your life where you could either... It's either like a breakup or a death or like a total career change or a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Great. And so it's symbolic in that way, I guess. Well, but, but I'm I like losing the way... my train of thought. No, but I like the way you. I like the way you uh, portray like the complexity of him uh, and your mom, like pretty much, yeah. and yourself, like. The, the thing about it is that people are messy, all of us. Totally messy. And it's like he's not... And like there are moments where I'm like, I can't believe he just did that. And yeah. then there are moments where I'm like, oh, you know? Yeah. Like, and I feel for him. Like, not only am I like uh, relating as a dad who loves his daughter, but I'm also like sympathetic to somebody who, you know, you screw up and then you feel bad and you're trying to make it right. And, yeah. And it's I think... It's a tragic hero in a way. Yeah. Like... One of the things I've learned in this, in the aftermath of publishing a memoir, because of course I, it's in the back of your mind all the time what 
his his family is going to think because he has surviving, you know, brothers and and stuff like that. And it's everyone has been enormously supportive, but I've heard through the family grapevine that his brothers were really shocked to hear that he was afraid of their father. Because um, there's a scene in the book where I think it's sort of the essential trauma in his life, which is that he lost his mother very suddenly um, in the 60s, right when he had gone off to college. And it was of cancer. But back then, I guess they didn't, they didn't, they didn't talk about cancer and they didn't like let children into a cancer ward or maybe anyone. I don't, it's so mysterious. They told, they thought she had the flu. Like my dad got a, got like a, a call at Ohio state from his younger brother. And he was like, come home quick. Mom's in the hospital. She's not doing well. And he didn't even know what it was. It turned out to be like uterine cancer, which oh nobody, you know, talked about or even knew about. It was like a, you know, female trouble. But so my dad was like, he had long, super long hair and he was a hippie and he went, rushed to the hospital, but got there with long hair. And his father, who had been you know, the greatest generation. He wasn't in the military, but he was a pilot. And he just had that kind of father knows best kind of, in my mind, from what I knew of him, very quiet man. Um, You know, he was like, what are you doing here? Looking like a hippie, go get your hair cut. And she died while he was at the barber, Uh like shaving his head so he could look presentable. And I think that's where his fear of his father came from. But I'd heard stories from my step-grandmother that he used to be, um, that he, that, I don't know, that he feared his dad. And because he had a terrible temper, and when his dad would get wind of it, then his father, I assumed, um, disciplined him or hit got violent with him but apparently according to my uncles never hit them never had a so much as a spanking unless it was like to prevent somebody from you know playing with guns or something like the and so it's either unreliable narrator or it's every kid has a different relationship with with their parent like if there's siblings or you know, it was just this, the sense that I got. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that person, my grandfather is deceased now and he's, I only knew him to be a very gentle and kind person, but, but very like closed off in, in the way that many in that generation are. But that would be, that's the toughest, like, I think that made them sad and then that makes me sad you know, but not sad enough that I regret it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you got to, you have a right to tell your story. You're, you know, you, you, uh, you're his daughter and I don't know. I feel like we have, we have to have the right and the authority that, to tell the story of our lives. And if that involves yeah. family, like if you don't, uh, I shouldn't have been brought into the world if, if they didn't want me to write right. a memoir about it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, you just have to parent as if all your kids are, 
going to grow up to write a book about it. That's exactly right. I, you know, Oof. I got to watch myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think too about parents, um, like one of the things that I often notice in myself when I lose my temper with my kids uh, is that it's usually not the thing that they're doing that pisses me off. It's that I've got other like work stuff is stressing me out. Ugh, of course. There's all this other stuff going on. And then God knows there could be psychic baggage from years gone by that is, you know, yeah, for some reason, um, you know, messing with me or something. So it's always complicated why people Ugh. lose their shit. It's not because you spilled your milk right. at the dinner table. It's because there's a, you know, this accrual of frustrations at work or in life or yeah. um, the marriage or the relationship with your mother or what, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's what saved me as a kid was knowing that it wasn't personal, which is such a weird thing, but I knew it wasn't personal. Like I saw him flailing. I knew that I was more mature and had more control over myself than he did. Um, which I think a lot of kids do who grow up in that kind of environment, which isn't very extreme. It was just his discipline was backed up by this evangelical church that we happen to be was, involved in, I which is another say. part of the book, um, coming to terms with a patriarchal God, um, seeing what that relationship dynamic does did to my mother who was, you know, fairly uneducated and, you know, married and a, a mother of three by, you know, 25 or whatever <laughs> it was in the 70s, you know, yeah, yeah. very different time. But yes, I, I can't believe recently I, I've been rewatching Friday Night Lights, which is one of my favorite shows um, of all be, time. Was it, what's his name? Riggins? Tim Riggins. Is he, oh my God. Every he girl cut I his know. hair yeah, yeah. in real life. And I'm just like, it's not the same. <laughs> Riggins forever. Um, but there's a great scene, I think, in season two where um, Tammy Taylor, the mom, played by Connie Britton, um, <laughs> has a fight with her daughter that gets physical. And I think she slaps her daughter. And it's something that, and then breaks down afterwards with her husband, coach, Eric Taylor. Um, <laughs> and that really resonated with me because my mom also hit me once in anger and, or it's the, but it was like, it wasn't anger. It was like I, frustration. Just, yeah. Just like, and of course it's so frustrating. It's, it's, it's hard uh, to be a parent. Yeah. I mean, there are certain moments where you're just like, oh my God, this chaos yeah. has got to stop. <laughs> and they're like an extension of you too. I mean, family is so intimate. It's so weird how you can't, you're like locked in with these people. That's right. Especially as a kid, like you have no rights, no control. Yeah. Um, and you've, you're, you're like forced to love your siblings and parents. <laughs> And and when you're a teenager, like that's usually really hard when you're forced. I don't know. I hope it's yeah. I hope it it's not as bad as it sometimes is. I can tell you're already. I feel like our generation is doing such a better job, right? I think I I just was saying this the other day or on a recent episode where I was like, 
quoting a friend's mom who has this theory that everybody <laughs> parents like 3% better than their parents. Oh, I like that. But like if you come from like a really bad situation, um, like really, really bad, yeah, then there's a chance that you could make a greater percentage jump. For sure. But the typical evolution is like, you're like 3% better, which is not nothing, you know? Yeah. And, and then like your kids will hopefully be 3% better and then we'll evolve as a species. Well, pop culture is getting better. And it's, I think it's a reflection of culture, but it also helps, you know, train people to be better. Yeah. I, I mean, lately. And to, to think a little more broadly. It's amazing how much things have changed since we were little. Like a lot's changed in our lifetime. Did you ever think like gay marriage would be ever legal? Yeah, I, barely, just... I didn't even like know an out gay person except for one guy in my high school until I was like almost out of college. Like my, even in college, I didn't know many at in Colorado. I went to the to the gay march on Washington in like 1993 in high school because I was like, I'm a riot girl. I'm an activist, <laughs> and it seemed like. I mean that that whole what is that church that oh yeah the one with in the God kills fags yeah, or whatever Phelps. that sentiment was so strong that it just felt like never that it'll it's never going to be accepted it's so shocking I think part of it has to do with like how far we've come with HIV and AIDS but when we were growing up AIDS definitely defined our understanding right and the country was so divided it was like remember oprah like the shows about like people licking the fruit at the grocery store and these homosexuals are taking over um wait people were licking fruit there was this famous um oprah winfrey episode where there was a like an urban legend rumor that this hiv positive Man, like the only gay in the village. <laughs> I'm using quotes here because that's a a sketch. Anyway, um, apparently he was licking fruit at the grocery store as a way to infect the masses. Oh my god! And she okay. had a special like town hall episode, and people were like, you know divided in the audience like 70 percent 30 percent this guy you know should be shunned in society for being sick and of course he was not licking fruit it was right. just remember when the little kid that who got it from the dentist ryan white he's from indiana okay yeah there you go people shunned that kid. Right. I mean, I don't know. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear. So I think like we, we've come a long way with HIV, but I think the driver, and I could be wrong, but I feel like at least one of the principal drivers of the incredible change that's happened, um, not that it's perfect now, but it's yeah. a lot better than it was with like LGBT rights is uh, culture. I think, you know, the exactly. Ellen, like the Ellen popular show, culture. popular culture, and, music you know and people coming out and when people yeah. come out and all of a sudden it's like well my uncle or oh my you know one of my friends at school yeah suddenly you start to realize that like this is our lives and we you know yeah I think people <laughs> a certain amount of, a certain percentage of people are gay that's and it. have always been through time yeah 
So it's like, you know, it's encouraging. I think it's worth studying um, in terms of like coming up with strategies for how to advance other social, like righteous social causes. Like, I don't know if there's ever going to be a one for one, but hopefully there are some good lessons to learn. Well, yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter, um, Me Too, these movements that have apparently come with not just the Internet, but specifically Twitter, you know, where you can instantly broadcast any secret you may be harboring, right. which is why I'm not on Twitter. That's <laughs> a terrifying. You would be good on it. Everyone says that, but I can't. I have too much anxiety about what I might say. Right. Um, if, I always worry that my jokes are just recycled and I don't know how to cite them. Like right. I would, you know what I mean? Like I sometimes Google funny things I think to see if there's precedent. Yes. Because I don't want to be, you know, flamed for, um, taking credit. I, who can take credit for being funny anymore? Well, and it's not like, only that, but like you could be organically. What if your sense of humor, you know, it gets really dicey around mm. humor. Like if you tell a joke that's like off color, you, you know, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some people might think it's fine. Other people might be like horribly offended. And my sense of humor is so much darker than is in the book. I right. mean, cause you just can't inflict that on people. Right. But those are, you know, you, you drift to the people that share your sensibility. So thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, right. But so yeah, we all need like safe space to just like be able to have a sense of humor. Yeah. And, or uh, tell rape jokes. Yeah. I mean, you know, like sometimes it's refreshing you, to you, laugh at it. You, you said that in the book though, right? There's a line about, I think rape I, jokes. I think I was talking about like the third wave feminists. Cause I, I worked at Ms. Magazine and it's last incarnation when it was still like independent and Gloria Steinem was, uh, you know, still coming to the board meetings and it was New York based. Um, Ooh, I just lost my train of thought. No, right but here. like we were like the rape jokes. <laughs> Sorry. And... Yes. I was just saying that. Um, yeah, that was the early aughts was when, I don't know, just rape jokes, um, fuck me feminism, um, sex work, uh, STI positive, you know, abortion on demand and without apology. It was kind of just like a, you know, we will talk about whatever the fuck we will talk about. I feel like now it's a, it's a lot less. Like, you can talk about what you want to talk about, but not... Not on Twitter. Not on fucking Twitter. Well, and we should say, too, um, and this, you know, brings us back to your book, is that, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're saying this and you have this kind of dark sense of humor um, and are kind of willing to go there in humor, but you're also somebody who's a survivor of abuse, which you detail in the book. Yes. So it's not like you don't have any, like, you know, there's no understanding. Like, you went through this. Yeah. Uh, and, or just... Everybody, I mean, it just, not everybody, but it feels like most women um, and men at least know somebody who can, you know, vouch for this experience, whatever the experience is. And whether I've experienced it or not as an ally or a human being, I just feel like that it's important to talk about 
things in in their raw state. Well, I'll tell you, it's that kind of stuff. I feel like I'm a little bit. I was a little bit naive. I was a little bit na- like naive about a lot of things just because I had this like sort of apple pie Midwestern yeah. upbringing, and like you know, you sort of. And Roxanne Gay still likes you, so it's okay. (laughs) You get exposed. You get exposed to a a lot of things, and uh, you know, or you get exposed to more things over the years. You meet more people, and you start to realize how pervasive sexual abuse is. It's like, my God, this is happening all over. It makes me terrified. As as you know, it's it's insidious, but it. I mean, it's it's good to be terrified as a parent because you'll talk about it and create a safe space and all of that. Um, but even just that you're aware of it and that you're a father, you're a father who's going to do right by their kid and not abuse them. Number one, right? because that's part of the problem. My book isn't about being sexually abused by a family member. Thank God. Um, but that is a lot of people's experiences. And, yeah. So for people listening, it was like a boy in the neighborhood. It was, yeah. The, the neighbor. The uh, who was also our babysitter. He was like a juvenile, but who grew to be a violent rapist um, while he was living next door to us and didn't discriminate between boys or girls or ages, apparently. Why? Like, what was he abused? Like, I, you know, I know that. Is I that know a, it's a hard question. Like, the I mean, maybe, but maybe not because he could have been you know, a psychopath, just like a chip missing. It, or... Absolutely. And that happens. I mean, how could a parent, you know, have sex with, I mean, rape a child, like these things happen. How could anyone rape a child right. or anyone, you know, how could you hold someone down or look in? Oh, it's, it's just, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And yet there's people like it's, is it a, yeah, I guess it's the mystery of how these people form. Like, is it genetic? Is it uh, environmental? Is it, I guess it's some combination of both maybe. Yeah, it's yes. I think it's genetic and environmental. And I think there's a hereditary component. You know, there's a lot, we've talked about this brain stuff a lot, but there's a lot to, you know, a lot of science to support that trauma actually changes our DNA and embeds itself and will be carried on from generation to generation. And we all like, okay, because this, this gets to something that, um, I wanted to ask you about because, you know, your father, the relationship that you had with him, certain events from childhood and then culminating with him passing away, like that's the, like at least a defining trauma yeah. in your life. Um, and I was thinking like, I guess you, if you live long enough, eventually there's going to be a defining trauma Yes, or more or one or more. Probably more. I like to think of it as like at least one a decade, you know, like when, when we were kids, it was like five things at once. Cause it, my dad had cancer right. and in his late thirties. We thought he was going to die. Um, there was a, a lot more fear than I have in there about like his, my father's um, time out of work or, I mean, there were a lot of, it was the eighties and there were a lot of like layoffs all the time. And it was about the primary breadwinner. And so that, Oh, there were just a lot 
of things. And plus sexual abuse and walking on eggshells and undiagnosed mental illnesses all over the place, right. a lack of resources um, in terms of uh, so behavioral health, let's call it, mental health, health. Yeah. Which Even is though we had means, it, you know, which is still a problem. Middle class, still a problem. Like who gets mental health care? I mean, you got to be, you got to be privileged. Um, you got to have money. Cause it's stuff so to, much money. And like to deal with insurance is a big pain in the ass. Most of the good therapists don't even take insurance. Right. <sighs> it seems like it's it. It's such a problem. Yeah. It's such a problem. I could, I could write a whole book about it. About just about trying to find healthcare, a good therapist, anyone to listen to you. The volume of people who probably need therapy or would benefit greatly from it has got to be so enormous compared to the number of people who actually get therapy. <laughs> like, oh my god! I mean, ratio. well, anyone could could absolutely benefit from it um, at certain times in their life. I. I'm not like a person that's like psychoanalysis. You should go twice a week. Yeah, right. I mean, unless you, you you're in a crisis, then it's absolutely um, a good idea if you can afford it. But <laughs> the traumatized are the children, not that adults aren't traumatized, but if you don't get that intervention when you are young, like somebody who says to you, looks you in the eye and says, this is not your fault. I see you and what you're going through, and we're going to help you get through this really tough time. And you don't have to let these life events define you. Right. Uh, because of the majority, millions and millions and millions of kids are molested or raped every year in America. And only a tiny, tiny percentage will go on to, you know, hurt other people that we know of in this way. Um, so I think the correlation is really fucked up. And I've tried to study it because I'm very interested as well. Um, but I think that's a big fear that people have. And maybe the reason why we don't talk about it at all um, is one, acknowledging that it happens in families and it happens and that we judge the the victims you know well there's a lot of shame you write there's it, I mean, so much shame yeah like it, but that, that always has struck me as weird like something like that happened i feel like i would be like immediately i like to think for some reason i would immediately be like oh my god this just happened to me but like almost no one does that almost everybody has some feelings of shame that they let it happen or... i yeah i didn't think I didn't have shame in the moment. I think I had shame a lot later because oh. the shame for me was not protecting my brother because oh, it right. right. So like my experience happened first and he was our babysitter and at my I was 11. And so it was like I was just at that age where I was like, hmm, I'm. I'm pretty, I, I think I got it, you know, like I might, I'm starting to have crushes on, on boys and girls, but, but, but it was like, I thought I was irresistible and this is how boys are, you know, this is, I mean, he was like 17 or 16 to my 11, but 
(laughs) you know, shit happens. And I just, I, I think I was ashamed in that way where you just like, don't want to have a secret, but really I just, um, wanted to protect my mother primarily, um, from from crying, you know, just from like getting upset because she was a very, um, she was really hard on herself as a mother. Like if we weren't all sitting down at the table at like seven o'clock or six 30 as a family, you know, she would cry. I mean, she was so upset because her world was falling apart. Um, cause she couldn't, you know, be happy within the family and all of that stuff. That's a lot of pressure. It's so much pressure. Three kids at the dinner table. Forget it. Psychodynamics. And they're all fighting. And then she's like, why don't we get along? (laughs) I mean, it's comedy gold. Like when you're growing up. Right. Um, but no, I think the shame comes later and it's part, I think for me, it's like, have you ever had any like bad sex or, pain with sex or can't get out of a bad headspace during sex, which I think is probably common for all people. I think that's where the shame comes from because I would sometimes link it to why can't I stop, you know, why can't I enjoy sex more when it really could have just been like, I don't know, for the millions of other reasons you don't enjoy sex more, but I would get it in my head like, oh, I'm damaged. There's something wrong with me. I, you know, I went through like 10 years of dating. (laughs) And so, you know, serial monogamy, but sometimes like one night stands in New York. So I I would like beat myself up over that. Like, oh, I have this hypersexuality because, you know, I was, I'm broken inside. So I think. These stories That's we tell. part of the shame is that it is linked to your sexuality. You know, somebody like literally mind fucks you. Like that's what rape is. It's a, you are going to feel this for the rest of your life. So many men, I see it. And I, I'm saying men because this is a, uh, these are the lawmakers and these are the they don't they think that you can just forget it like you can just it's it's one experience or it was a bad sex so maybe your vagina was sore like they always think in terms of like well did she have a black eye you know it's violent no matter what but it's most it does the most harm to your brain wow you went through a lot. <laughs> I didn't realize it all. I mean, oh, I, I think bits, bits and pieces over the years, I, you would tell me, but like, I never got the full, the full puzzle, you know, which the yeah. book presents. And, um, I feel like, you know, the therapy that you've done had to have been crucial. Like you have to, at some point, get help to sort these things out. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's too big of a, I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't know if anybody could do it alone. Maybe you have a friend or a family member who's particularly gifted at helping emotionally, but at some point, I think like going to therapy has got to have been—it's uh, got to be like a, a must. 
I really wish that I could have saved that money. <laughs> like I, I wish it's it feels really expensive, and it is. But when you take into account all of the things that we do to make ourselves feel better or to black out some kind of psychic pain, like substance abuse, which I loved, you know, and I still, you know, have a fondness. Like I get it. Yeah. I'm never going to judge people for picking up that whatever it is because right. i know what it's there for but the it's just not the way because it will fuck you up like that's having a, a a fun i thought few year ride with like opioids wow that really fucks up your ssri yeah. experience you're lucky and to be here it could mean- i'm lucky to be here and it um but that's part of it is just is also meds for me, you know, and knowing that and not being ashamed of it. And that's another part of like what we have to do as a culture to remove the stigma around <laughs> just basic anxiety, trauma, you know, the PTSD is real. Yeah. So many I can't believe what people go through. Well, I'm just saying like, it just makes me think like when there's this many people who are abusing, um, painkillers. Exactly. It means people are in a lot of pain Yeah. <laughs> and we need to get, we meet, we need to make some structural political and societal changes so that people have access to different and healthier means of dealing with pain. Right. I mean, it's just like, yeah. it just seems like if millions and millions of people are all popping opioids, like, yes, they're highly addictive, but yeah, it's, it's like a blinking red sign that like people are hurting. We, we gotta, we gotta reassess, you it's know? It's true. It's true. And there, there's not enough options, you know, like a lot of people just go to AA or some kind of 12 step program cause it's free and I don't blame them, but that's what they're looking for. Like, just the basics of the basic psychodynamic, like having a conversation, have somebody validate your experience. Um, That's what church should be. It, yeah. And I hear that it is for some people, but I mean, what service it's an institution that like, has a bottom line. Well, yeah. And <laughs> right. And my experience of church growing up, uh, you know, in Catholicism, it wasn't like this, like this open venue for people to share their suffering. It was like, yeah, there's a man in a robe telling you what God thinks. And, you know, I, you know, that's well, an oversimplification, that's what, but that's what eventually drove my parents away was that there was, you know, they gave everything to this church, like all of their free time, their energy, and I'm sure a lot of their money, like people tithe, right? Like 10% of their income. And when my dad was diagnosed with cancer or when there were like problems in the relationship, um, just the church disappeared. There would be like my mom's one best friend who, you know, hung in there with her once she chose like a secular path if you will. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't there. Like it's the prayer group thing. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. I think it's just a quest for community and friendship and I get it. Yeah, I totally get it. I, I totally get it. I mean, I love a 
a casserole and a, a potluck and a coffee <laughs> brunch and, right. and community, I guess. We need, well, you know, we, I think we need more of it. I think we need more like social connectivity and we need to support one another more. We need like structures to, that, uh, allow for that, you know, like I guess in my idealists, uh, mind, I kind of want for churches to just like rethink the dogma part. Yeah. And then get into it, like creating spaces for people to just come in and like an AA meeting, like there's something so beautiful about a person just getting up in front of a group and just being like, this is how I fucked up. This is yeah. where I'm hurting. Testimony. Testimony. Just like so raw. And, and I mean, did they do that at your church? They absolutely did that. And I appreciate people's testimonies. The problem is then it evolves into this kind of script you know, where you're washed in the blood of the lamb and oh, you're yeah. talking, you're, you're not speaking in tongues, but you're, you're speaking in Shakespeare, you know, it's just like you memorized that shit. <laughs> but see at AA, you just and, say it. And then like when, at the end, you're like, I'm an alcoholic and everyone says, what doesn't everyone say something back? I forget what it is. I'm, well, uh, they just say your name like, hi. Yeah. But that, but nobody's like, hi. nobody is prescriptive afterwards. No. And you're not allowed to like. You, you know, give any advice for yeah. one, which is good. Yeah. You know, that's what I mean. So people can just like get up and like, I think even that alone, what people have to hear. Yeah. It's, well, it's why we read and, and write memoir in particular, I think is to like dwell on a subject, meditate on it, hate, read it to see what happens. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's a good therapy, you know. You, there's catharsis to be had for the reader, I think, as well. So if it's did you it, get it as a writer? I definitely would have said no. Um, but now that I'm on the other side of the publishing process, yes, I. In terms of like, it's behind me. My self-loathing is behind me, and I have this, you know, bright future. Because I just got married. Okay, so I have a question about this. I was going to save this for the end because I'm, I'm, I was reading the book, and I, forgive me if I'm not like like we were talking about my memory earlier. Oh yeah. And I read every word, but I don't always retain everything. But there was a guy in high school named Chris. Yes, I named him Chris. Oh, you did. Yeah, I named oh, him. Oh, okay. I changed most names in the book. Oh, because then at the end I read the acknowledgments, and you were like, and Chris, you know, you were dedicating <laughs> it to clearly your significant other who is yes. now your husband. Yes. And I was like, oh my God, did she get back together? Like I was No, I this. know. And similarly, my cousin was like, I, I thought for, you know, 30 pages that you had a secret brother named Simon and nobody ever told me cause I'm the youngest. <laughs> it was so cute. Yeah. I changed the names, but that person, his name is Alan, um, is still a great okay. human being. And so I look at my life as like bookended by these incredible loves and, yeah, so the one I married is named Chris. How long have you been married? When did this happen? It happened. We eloped at like in a seaside cottage last November. Good for like you. After my birthday. Oh, it was amazing. I <laughs> highly, highly recommend like destination elopement. Well, that's what we did. You did, right? Yeah, we went to Italy. Oh, 
Yeah. It's so, it's so good. And at, like at the time I was like, are we doing this right? And then afterwards I was like, that was exactly right. Cause it's the vacation yeah. and you do exactly what you want to do. And like, there's no, oh. like the stress of like picking out the silverware. Like, fuck that. I just want to oh, get yeah. married. No registry. None of that. <laughs> um, but I realized after I'd finished writing the book though, because of course it takes another year or sometimes two for it to actually come out because of the publishing, the production process. Um, yeah. So I met him on OkCupid. Look at you. Four months before I turned 40. So that was four years, almost four and a half years ago. Um, that we started dating, but it, but I just, I wanted to have a, somebody to kiss at my 40th birthday party. And so I sort of picked him out of the 95th percentile and it, we lived six blocks away from each other. It was your typical like meet cute after that. Right. And we've been together ever since. And he's, it feels like that first love I had with that original Chris. That guy. I was, like, I was like, wow, he's I don't think I can such... ever compare. <laughs> I, the tattoo he's with the married. Knife. <laughs> <laughs> so I, oh, I know. But like as written on the page, I was like, well, this guy is, he like, was I want to hero. run away with him. He, yeah. he really saved me. And of course I, you know, treated him terribly because I was a, a dummy and I was, you know, in my twenties. But, I'm so grateful that I had that because men are great, can yeah. be can be wonderful human beings. And I think I didn't know that and for a very long time. Yeah. And and like really believe in it. And now I know it's simply a shitty excuse to be a man and the whole boys will be boys because you don't have to be like that. It's well, it's not a, your the whole toxic destiny. masculinity thing. You I know. know. And I... I get it. That's people hate these catchphrases, but I don't know. Tony Cruz can say it. Terry Cruz can say it. <laughs> Didn't he write a book about it? Yeah, yeah. No. And there's another one coming that just came out by a guy who'd been on the show. His name is Jared Yates Sexton. But mm. I think it depends who raises you, what the culture's like, what your influences are. Some people can coach themselves out of it or they get a lifeline through books or, you know, whatever yeah. it is. But typically there's adults in their lives who are modeling behavior that, they yeah. emulate. Um, but yeah, it's nice to hear somebody say that like it is possible for men to be oh, good people. <laughs> it's more than possible. <laughs> it can be done. Um, I want to get a, a little bit further into uh, catharsis. You know, it's a tired question when it comes to memoir, but mm -hmm. I, I think there's validity to it. Like some people push back and they're like, oh, please, like don't tell me that you had catharsis from writing a memoir. But I think like in a very simple way, when you're dealing with trauma and you're processing it in literature and you go through the grind of writing it, yeah, like uh, that act alone of externalizing it, yes, like it doesn't make it all better, like tied up in a neat bow, but it does have a healing power. Every single person in my life, like woman that I was close to said including my mother, like once you finish this or, and definitely my therapist, once you finish this and really, really finish it, you will find that person. And I hate that kind of shit because it, uh, you never, I don't know. I just, 
that kind of like, ugh. But it was true. It, it's it was exactly true. what happened. Yeah. Like I conjured it. I, I manifested it. Or, but you also, you also. Or I just learned to not take any more shit. And, you know, I stopped apologizing um, or, or trying to be, like, really nice. And and then the, he just turned out to be, like, the kindest. Like, I picked Chris because he has, like, I mean, I just picked his picture because I could tell he had these really kind eyes. And maybe that's just something that I've developed over the years. Or maybe there's some women that can just tell. Like, or some people where the person's eyes, there's a kind of genuine something. Um, but that, that's definitely new. Cause it's, cause I'd always gone for like wild eyes right. and like <laughs> drunken eyes or pinpricks for <laughs> pupils. <laughs> Dilated pupils. Yeah. Uh, well, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think too, it's like, not only are you conjuring and manifesting, but there's also this like unburdening, like when you're not carrying that weight or at least as much of it as you once were, Yeah, you know, you have more, um, energy and psychic space to entertain other possibilities or something. I think that's right. And I feel healthier, like my like my body feels healthier. Like, you know, I don't need a massage just for like writing, right. um, <laughs> like writing a paragraph or whatever, you, you know, or a, a good cry. I can cry about other people's shit, yeah. you know? And yeah. I, I, I love, I love crying at other people's shit, but I feel, I just feel better. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad it's over. And yeah. I also feel left with an incredible love for my dad. And just like, ironically, all the happy memories. And you know how like when someone dies and all you can feel are just someone, someone you love dies. Right. All you remember are like the most incredible, like the best parts of them and like the best days. Right. And then it's later when the stuff starts coming up maybe it's a process it's part of the grief but now i feel back in a place of grief where it's just like a sentimental like a good sentimental like a beatles song well and they say that you get there i mean it's time i mean it's a little cliche but like time heals and i think if you have like a really deep love for somebody even if it's complicated there's obviously going to be deep grief. There's going to be these ups and downs in the process, but eventually you get to the point where most of the time the memory doesn't make you cry. It makes you kind of smile. Yeah. Like I've been, I'm shocked that I haven't like broken down or choked up during any of, you know, my many appearances for this <laughs> promotional tour. Um, but yeah, I'm glad it, it just feels good. And I know, I mean, it's certain, Certain people have been like, your dad would be so proud of you. He would. Even, even though. Right. And I think that's true. Um, I know that's true. I feel like, you know, because it's like, I mean, how can you say definitively? But you talked earlier about your dad knowing that he was at fault, but not being able to like access it. Yeah. In a way, by exposing the truth as you remember it. Yeah. And by trying to be real on the page, you're sort of doing that. Hum humanizing humanizing in it and, ex and like and like 
making it external. Like this is the way that, you know, and speaking the truth. Yes. And like, I think that there's something on a cosmic level, like healing for him in that. Yeah. Maybe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that you say cosmic. I hope so. I mean, my, I have two siblings, two brothers, and we're all like of that age, definitely middle age adults. And I'm about to have my first nephew. He's due in like three weeks. Congrats. Um, And his name is Jackson after, you know, our dad. So that's interesting. It'll be, I've been surprised and heartened by the support that my brothers have given me in this endeavor. Like, I'm just shocked that they've read the book and told other people about are they it on, were they on board with everything like in terms of your de- like depictions like were the memory yeah. the memories yeah. line up the greg brother has chosen not to the greg brother read <laughs> the greg <laughs> in the book my my brother who's not really named that oh, oh right um okay. he he's not going to read the book just because it's a little traumatic for him but um Simon uh, has been a huge supporter and has, you know, bought copies. And um, it's just all very, yes, everybody, I guess, well, to answer your second question, I, um, I heard a lot of stories that even I'd forgotten uh, about or that I didn't know of about like my dad and his anger like for instance this is a good one my brother reminded me that um i was like 12 or something and um uh, what's it called my george michaels is it george michael yeah faith he, yeah faith yeah. faith came out yeah. that was like a huge record right 19, 1988 1988 um i want your sex right so everybody had that cassette <laughs> and so i had that cassette in the car and i wasn't in the car but my brother and my dad were in the car and my brother was really little like 10 or something um but he remembers this really clearly. And he said the song Father Figure was on. And that my dad was having like a really, he was like, what do you think your sister, what What do you think she thinks this is about? Father Figure. <laughs> it, like he was get, he was like reading way too much. Into it. <laughs> and then I Want Your Sex came on, I guess, when they were pulling into the driveway of our house. And he took the tape out of the car and came into the house and like slammed it, you know, like ran into my room and like smashed it against the wall into many pieces and uh, banned George Michael from my, uh, it's crazy. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like listening to sticky fingers (laughs) by the Rolling Stones and playing with the, the dick zipper on the album cover. Anyway, did you play, stuff w- like that? Was he under the um, impression that George Michael was straight? Because I remember at that age, for me, I was like, I, I thought he, he would... must have, and it wasn't even a, a about that. I, yeah, yeah. Everybody, yeah, whatever. The word sex 
The it, word it was scandalous. Figure. It was scandalous. I want your sex Super was super scandalous. Did they play it at your school dance? I, I don't know if they did that, but I just remember like it was on MTV. And then remember like George Michael in the video. Yeah. I was like, this is not about casual sex. It's about monogamy. Remember he had to like put I a disclaimer on it. I remember that <laughs> like it was yesterday. Um, so before I let you go, I want to ask you, because it's kind of a unique experience for a literary, uh, literary agent to publish. Yeah, I, I, several do, but I mean, yeah. it's, you know, you've been on the other side of the line for all these years. And then you talked a little bit about the, you know, the sales process and the writing process, but the publication process, like when it's really, you know, yeah. ramping up, like, has it given you like a new insight into your clients? <laughs> like, Hell yeah. Like, I mean, not new insight. Like I've surprised myself that I have no interest in looking at Goodreads, Amazon, any of that, or my numbers, right. none of my business. Um, I was surprised how scary that feels. You know, like when you do dip in in the beginning, as we all do, to see how many giveaways are going yeah, on. Right. Um, and those early reviews, it's just like, woo, painful. Like no matter what they think. Or it's not, but it's just like, wow, they didn't get it. Well, I wish I could talk. But, but then, meh. Or worse, it's just like the resounding apathy of like, you have a couple of dozen you know, so your book is going to be this. It's not going to be that. Your the chances of your book like earning out its advance right. or becoming a, a bona fide success for the publisher, so that they like remember you or even know that you're on the list. Right. Oh, it's, there's it's, nothing like that. It's, it's a, but the thing is, you come into it with a realist perspective because. Yeah, you, I. I really try and advise all the writers to like protect themselves first and not don't put any pressure on yourself. A for the New York times, every writer I know is obsessed with getting into the New York times, like book review in particular guys doesn't matter at all, except for your ego because it just doesn't sell books. I, as an agent, I have seen, Whew. Some of the best reviewed novels in particular in in the history of the world <laughs> just sell like a thousand copies. And they were on the cover of the Times Book Review, glowing, glowing, what does glowing. Sell books? Just word of mouth. NPR. NPR. NP like national NPR. Um definitely moves the needle. Word of mouth, of course, Reese Witherspoon at the moment, Oprah still. Um, full court press, seven figure advance sometimes will be a kind of guarantee, but not always. It means you'll get, you'll get as much as they can give in terms of assistance, Right. but it's still a mystery. It's still a gamble on their part. Right? Too. It's a huge gamble. So for people out there listening who are working on a book or who want an agent, you said now that memoir is kind of, it's not what it used to be. Now it's like celebrity memoir. Yeah. Like you can't write to the market. It's always shifting. It's always shifting. Publishers are always surprised. The books like Hillbilly Elegy, which is terrible. Not that I read it, but like, you know, that wasn't a priority book for them. They didn't know what 
that that was going to... Who could have predicted that? Right. And so I, I mean, I would be shocked if they gave that person a big advance. I don't think that Nobody they can did. predict. Nobody I can mean, miss. you just have no idea. And the market was really different when I signed this book up. And you could kind of be, you know, you could kind of have like a thousand friends. <laughs> and that was enough, you know? Yeah. And now it's it's all about influencers and Instagram. And if I have to hear the word influencer again, I'm going to die yeah. because... I think they mean like Kylie Jenner and those people don't buy books, you know, like the bookstagram, like whatever. Yeah. It's so, it's so, it's an impossible, um, it's, it's impossible to make it definitive. Like nobody really quite knows in the end why certain books take off. It's like, right. Like look at the Sally Rooney phenomenon, like, that book is she's how much Irish. Is, how much is it sold? How much is it sold? <laughs> I don't know. A lot. A lot. A lot of copies. Um, but that's interesting to me because not just because of her age, but because she's not American. And usually you, you must be American. Not usually, but for this kind of buzz, it's that's it's great. And I think surprising. Like there's just no way that you can count on that. So Everybody, just write what you want to write to you the just, best of you your have ability. To write, I really tried to write outside my box, if you know what I mean. Like, we all do. We try to be better. You can't. You, it's hard to... I mean, you can edit, but you just have to be who you are on the page. And it's worth, it's worth finishing a project, even if it never sells. Did you... Uh have trouble with honesty did you have any like did you find yourself holding back oh yeah you did i held back a lot of stories and a lot of things that weren't my right to tell like other people's stories um yeah because i didn't i didn't want to embarrass most people (laughs) i didn't want to embarrass anyone but myself so i i think i was pretty careful about that or just tried to make certain things more generic but i held a lot of stuff back and there were father daughter stories that i held back because it's too much right to like hit hit the reader over the head with like more repetition you know i was yeah i did my best in that regard and but but, i mean it's still very candid you know you're still like not only are you telling a lot of stories that involve family members but you're also very candid about yourself as a teenager, sexual history, drug use, yeah. abuse, like you go there. <laughs> and so I think when people do that, they typically, I don't know, it's like this, I think sometimes people can conceive of people writing these things as a, as a kind of like setting the record straight or vengeance or revenge or something like that. But it, there's also, I think, more often than not, a certain nurturing environment that a person comes from to feel at liberty to share that much. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, maybe it's a little bit of both, but it's like, like you said earlier, like as difficult as your family life could be, you always felt loved that comes through on the page. Like your family is a loving family. Yeah. It's dysfunctional at times. It's, it can be messy. 
Yeah. But like I found myself endeared to each person in the family. Oh, good. Yeah. My mother was like, I think you said in a podcast, you called it ours a loveless marriage. And I wanted to set the record straight that she was like, it wasn't a loveless marriage. You know, there was love. It was just an untenable yeah. <laughs> situation and marriage. Um, and so, yeah, that's the conclusion that that I've come to. Um, and you felt that liberty to say, you know, to... Yeah, and as a rule, the advice that I've always been given by Betsy Lerner, herself an agent and two-time memoirist, um, is you just have to tell the truth. Like, when we ask it of our clients, particularly, you know, in nonfiction, where it's like... You have to have a legal read. You have to like get into the nitty gritty about. Oh, it's just it can be really a lot if we're if we're asking our clients to the, to do that on the page. You have to do it too. Well, you, you know? did it. It's just the only way to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Thank true. You. It's it's a really good book. I'm really happy Thank for you, you and uh, I'm glad to get to see you and to catch you as you're celebrating its publication. And like, what's next? What are you doing next? Who, you know, I think I know everybody says this starting a podcast. Are you? But yes, because two of my two friends and also writers who care about like fathers um, in their work, uh, Matthew Philp and Elizabeth Thompson want to start a podcast called Tell Me About Your Father or where's dad, which is this quip that, um, Dr. Drew used to always say to callers on Loveline. Oh, right. yeah, right. Remember Loveline? Yeah. Some girl would call in every show and he, yeah, he'd be like, where's dad? <laughs> like that's his answer for everything. And so what I found, uh, you know, working on the book and promoting the book is that everybody has a father story. They all want to talk about their dads, men, women. And if you are a father, I want to talk to you about your parenting, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's so many people from people that we know that nobody knows with extraordinary father stories um, to Lisa Brennan Jobs or Aaron Carr, who also has a book coming out uh soon if not already um you should call it father figure (laughs) it might already been be taken all right uh my dad wrote a porno is already taken did have you seen that show it's now on hbo but it was a podcast called my dad wrote a porno i want to say i read about it but i haven't seen it is it good it's like a it's uk okay but my dad also wrote a porno so i fucking love that wait title. he did well he wrote a pornographic story i think i mentioned it in the book wait, but when he like he took a stab at fiction and you were like a short yeah he the he wrote a short story he told me and i got a job at the literary agency and i'd been working there a year and it was just a few months before he died and he gave me this short story he said <laughs> to see if it was publishable because he was thinking of submitting it to like Playboy or Maxim. It was a straight up penthouse letters, sexual (laughs) cuck fantasy about my mother. Oh my God. (laughs) 
I like that. I like that though, because I remember this part of the book. I like the fact that you were like not afraid to be like, this was a horrendous. This is really bad, Dad. Um, but also like kind of sweet that he was like trying to like impress in, me, impress you, yeah, and get into he, your world. Cause then I, at that point I was a New Yorker and I, like everyone he wanted to, to publish. And so I was in the, you know, mm-hmm. had the foot in the door and he was convinced of his, his writing, his literary prowess. <laughs> so, uh, when is the podcast going to launch? You know, Brad, we're figuring that out now. Okay. No, well, we're uh, this fall. This fall. All right. I you, mean, you how get... does one even do this? I'll talk to you later. Yeah, yeah. I can, like... I can consult. I can teach you uh, about the gear and how to. It's not that hard. Is it so stupid to even try? No. I mean, it's not like you. I I would have these conversations anyway, so I like. It's I like fun. Talking to people. It's it's wonderful, and I think that the key is to just believe in what you're doing. Like you have to like it first yeah. of all. And then if you want to build a following for your show, you have to just, you have to keep doing it Yeah, like on a consistent schedule. Right. Otherwise, cause people then become, you gotta, I always say you gotta feed the stray cats. Otherwise they're going to go to the next house. And you just cold call people or, I mean, do you reach out or people just come to you at this point? At this point, people come to me. Like I get publicists. Nice. Yeah. Um, I love that. sometimes I'll, but sometimes I'll do out. I mean, it just depends it, or if, like a person I know will recommend somebody or yeah. some of it's contingent upon who's coming through LA on tour just cause I only like to do them in person. Who do you really want to talk to next? Um, well, I mean, there's a million people I have. I yeah. can't, I can't reveal okay. who's coming up, but I have, uh, some interesting guests coming up Yeah, and Bigger names, big names. Howard Stern. <laughs> yeah, I, I really want to read his book, though. <laughs> I do too. Right? I do too. I do too. I'm a, yeah, I love Howard Stern because uh, it's about the interviews. I think yeah, and I think that's like the, my favorite thing about him. Of course, especially like late, like I like later period Howard Stern. I like satel- yeah. the satellite woke, years. Woke Howard. Woke Howard is good. <laughs> um, like you know the earlier juvenile uh, humor stuff is not uh. as interesting, but his his interviews, I think like. His interviews became better as he went to therapy. Which he talks about a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sure and that's this, what's in the book. Well, it just on his publicity tour. Um, and he's clearly like, he's the perfect example of somebody who is just has grown as a person and is better because he spends his life having conversations with people. Right. And in- not judging the content but but pushing, yeah. you know, like getting to it, like getting past that fucking, I'm on a junket tour and right. I have to, no. You can't do that. Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Like answer a fucking question. Right. You, you know, like it's not. It's so glorious when he like pins somebody and he just keeps, you know, because yeah. like as a listener, you're like, okay, he's cutting through the bullshit and it's, I think it's a great service and I think it's actually, I mean, I don't know if it's always pleasant for the people he's interviewing, but it's. It's just always better to be honest. I don't know. I mean, you, it don't, is. you don't have to divulge every single dark secret of your life in a public forum. Yeah. But I do think that hearing people try to be real and have real conversations, for me anyway, is like really nourishing and like medicinal. You do, it has like a medicinal effect. It relaxes me almost. Uh, yeah. Because I think there's just so much bullshit. 
yeah like in the culture and in the way that people often present especially like in a celebrity context yeah i think i i really think like a conversation can save a life i mean just for that day even yep well and i think you know because of the because of the fact that people listen in their cars yeah or they listen in earbuds it's like one of the last bastions along with like reading a book mm-hmm. for like slow food attention yeah and like intimate connectivity between consciousness as mm-hmm. plural um you know you get to read somebody's insides in a book or you can hear somebody if they're willing to be candid enough in a podcast or a podcast conversation um open up and that can be a lifeline i think you know yeah so I can't wait to hear it when it comes out. We don't know the Thanks, name that we don't Boo-boo. know. The, yeah. We don't know the name yet. Uh, let's say, tell me about your father. Cause okay. it isn't taken and it's a little more, um, obvious, but I'm sure we'll use like a clip of where's dad. <laughs> Is that fair use? If I can just do a snippet. Just, I mean, like, I can't imagine they're going to come so after funny. you for a second. Okay, good. Um, well, great to see you. Congratulations. Great to see you. Thank you. All right, guys, there is Erin Hosier. Her memoir is called Don't Let Me Down. It is available now from Atria. You can find Erin online at erinhosier.com. She's got a Facebook presence and an Instagram presence. Don't Let Me Down by Erin Hosier. Out there now. Go get your copy immediately. It's a wonderful book. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a few bucks in the hat. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. It's the official app of this program. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available wherever you get your apps. It's free. Go get it. Next week on the program, the return of Steve Almond. Oh my fucking God. (laughs) 